Welcome to Soft Skills 101, Life Skills for a Digital Age. This podcast is sponsored by the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network, as well as True North Homeschool Academy. True North Homeschool Academy offers live online classes, testing, academic advising, a unique special needs program for K-12, classical memory, and more. Please visit our website at truenorthhomeschoolacademy.com or either of our Facebook groups, Help Homeschooling High School and Survive and Thrive Special Needs Homeschooling. You can find us on Pinterest, Instagram, and Twitter, and we would love for you to download and follow this podcast on iTunes and share it with your friends. Today on the show, David and I will be talking about respect and connection and electronic communication. My husband, Dr. David Nearing, is on the show with me today. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Hey, Lisa. It's great being on with you today. Today, we're going to talk about respect and connection and electronic communication, and we're going to start off by talking about a show that we both really enjoyed, The Crown. Yeah, I really enjoyed watching it with you. I didn't think I was going to, but, you know, it's really grown on me. So, <laughs> The Crown is about Queen Elizabeth and her life, Queen Elizabeth II, um, and her life. And so, we want to talk about one scene in particular that jumped out at us as we were talking or thinking about this show with respect and connection. Um, Elizabeth is in Africa doing the Commonwealth tour with her husband. Her dad, King George, is still alive when she leaves on this tour. And while she is in Africa, her dad dies. Now she has to return to England, this time as heir apparent, but she is also a mourning subject to a now dead king. The protocol is that she disembark in England dressed in black, showing appropriate respect and dignity toward her father and king. But what happens is that the gal who packs all of her clothes forgot to pack a black morning dress. So she's on the plane waiting to get off. The whole country is waiting for her. All the press are there. The plane is waiting while a black dress and shoes and appropriate accoutrements are brought to the plane and she changes her clothes. Once she's appropriately attired, she disembarks the plane and she is there in England as they are apparent. But I found it very interesting that everyone was willing to wait while she changed her clothes. It seems so silly to us now. Well, it it was a big deal at that time because that was what being part of a real nation was at that time in the in history in in the 1950s. It we're talking about respect and connection, but we want to talk first about conformity and expectation. This is a great example of this. An entire nation had expectations that she was to conform to that communicated what respect was. Conformity to expectations at that time was about something different than it's about today. It was about being part of a community called a nation, and being part of that nation meant that one could survive, thrive, have a life, because everybody was conforming to these expectations that made it a nation from that time. So so you're saying that their conformity really mattered to the people because it conveyed something to them. It's, it meant that they were British, they were German in another country, they were French, and by conforming to the expectations, it allowed them to work together, and it allowed them to communicate, and it allowed them to do very important things, such as tradition, uh, transition the monarch. Mm-hmm. Without having those expectations that people followed through on, there would have been all kinds of chaos and confusion at that time. I mean, that's how uh, monarchs and secession between kings and queens got really messy and bloody because people did not uh, follow those expectations. Here, we see that they're working really hard to conform to those expectations that were part of being a monarch in this tribe called the British nation of that time in history. 
And so something as simple as changing your clothes conveyed a smooth transition from one world leader to another. It was very symbolic, and everybody understood the the symbolism of that because everyone had shared expectations because they were part of this community called a nation. So identification and conformity to expectations at that time were really functional. They were part of what allowed a nation to exist. People had to work together to conform, cooperate, and operate with these clear long-term expectations about what each other were going to be doing in order to do anything of real value at that time. I mean, I think about the, the dikes and polders of Northwest Netherlands as a good example of, of this kind of cooperation and conformity. So when I think of dikes, I always think of the little boy in the dike who saved his whole country. And there's this picture where he's standing on his tiptoes and his arm raised over him with his little finger plugging the dike. And if he takes his finger out, the whole ocean's going to come and just wipe out his whole village. You know, that's not that far from the truth, because once those dikes started to leave, then that could bring down the whole dike. And because the farmland there was several feet, maybe even yards, under the sea level of that time, once those dikes started to break, Whole villages could be flooded and people could die. Wow, that it's just crazy to me to think that you would live three feet under cold ocean water and you'd farm. It's just such a different world. Well, not only that, but those farmers, a lot of those people had to maintain their own windmill because the windmills were pumping water out of the gullies and ditches into other ditches that then would be pumped back into the ocean so that the water table didn't come up and flood the whole area. So it was really a community effort to keep that farmland going. It was a constant community effort that required close coordination, clear expectations, and conformity with what people were expecting from one another. And that's what allowed that culture to be defined the way it is, as with most cultures. And every five-year-old to do their part. Everyone to do their part. (laughs) And the point that they're making is that that include even five-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Now, national cultures of that time were these large systems of understanding uh, and agreement about coordinating expectations and attitude of that time. But that's not what we have now. I mean, that's where a lot of social tension and, and polarization is coming from in our society, is that people honestly don't know what expectations they should be having from each from one another. Conformity now means that a person is part of some kind of social network. It's part of this global digital society. People are not identifying with their tribes or nations or or even their families to a large degree. That's one of the reasons why I believe that the birth rate is dropping in the West. Mm. People are are not feeling the responsibility to continue their families, their tribes, their nations. It's just all about them individually. And they're not part of this, this bigger story. You know, one of the things we talked about was when we were kids, we would often hear our grandparents and even parents say, you need to do this. And when we asked them why, the response was, that's what we need to do. Or we've always done it that way. There was this sense of continuity between generations and across groups. I remember clearly at that time that people would say, this is just the way it is. I mean, it's just... Just that's the way we've always did it. And they talked like that because, indeed, people were part of these communities and ethnic groups, and they had these clear expectations that existed. And you're absolutely right. People had those understandings of what that meant at Mm -hmm. that time. 
Now when we're talking about people being part of social network groups, you're part of a group because of a shared interest, not because you're trying to save your farmland from flooding by a, a cold North Atlantic Ocean. Right. And in this day and age, we have institutions to do that. We have institutions to provide those survival kind of functions. And so people's expectations with one another you know, are, are not as clear. An exception to that would be in like some of the small towns in South Dakota that were hit by tornadoes several years back. Wessington Springs is what I had in mind. The people there in that town knew that they had to depend upon each other because it was going to be several hours before the emergency uh, response institutions actually arrived there. Mm -hmm. And so they just got to work, rolled up their sleeves, and did what it took to get themselves uh, rescued. And so by the time that the emergency people there, they already had it well in hand because they had that expectation that they relied on one another. But that's a, an exception in this time in history, not the rule. Whereas in the past, that would have been the rule. Mm -hmm. So now people are really talking about communities on digital platforms. But in truth, it's not a community. I don't see that it, that it is at all because what they're doing is they're sharing sort of vocational and entertainment interests. They might have something as substantial as political or religious interest. But the most part, you know, Pinterest and some of these other kinds of social platforms, folks are actually conveying information about things that really are about crafts and hobbies and entertainment. Mm -hmm. Right. So connection then and connection now. Connection then really had to do with rural community. When I was growing up, uh, we would go to my grandparents' lake cottage. And my grandparents were farmers in northeast Indiana. They, they farmed mint for Wrigley Spearmint Gum. And at one point, they were able to build a small cottage on a lake. My uncle owned the, the land around the lake. And so my grandpa built a cinder block cottage right next to my uncle's house. And we spent many weekends of my childhood up there at the lake just playing croquet and doing board games with my aunts and uncles and going to my Aunt Dolly's house and singing to her around the piano. It was very relationally oriented, very community oriented. None of us would have dreamed to get on the phone. There were no phones there. Um, we would go canoeing. We would play yard games. We would play board games. But the point of being at the cottage together was to be at the cottage together, interacting, talking. Well, you were interacting, talking, connecting, because there was a connection that all of you had with one another, and you were trying to maintain that connection, which was about an authentic bonding that you had. People in online communities, in quotes, are really trying to affiliate, not really connect in substantial functional ways. Mm -hmm. Whereas what you were doing that time where you, in fact, had this identity, being part of a family, and also being part of a community the the German Mennonite community of Indiana at the time. Mm -hmm. And all those identifications that you had at that time allowed you to focus on connecting and people had expectations that they could fulfill and conform to, which allowed those relationships of respect and honor to actually occur. Right, right. So doing life together was spontaneous, but there was really a flexible structure there. There was a structure and it wasn't just a free-for-all. The, also, the expectation was that people would talk about what they'd been doing, what their plans were, what their hopes and dreams were. And as we bonded together, we all had a firm sense of who we were. We, we were developing our identity as children within that community of older adults as well. Well, connecting at that time meant respecting, seeing, touching, talking. People often now think connection means more or less just passing information. 
but that cannot really be real authentic connection. Mm-hmm. So when I learned to knit, I was five, and my other grandma, who lived in Chicago and actually had a, a job, my grandmas were very, very different people. But my grandma in Chicago sat me down at her kitchen table. The sunlight was streaming through the windows. And my grandpa, who'd been hit by a car a couple years before, who was always a permanent fixture in the kitchen, was sitting there smiling, reading the paper. And grandma would take my hands in hers. <clears throat> she was left-handed and reverse knit for me. So I could see her as she was knitting. She was touching my hands. And I learned to knit at a very early age, mainly because I was there with grandma. You were actually there present physically with her. I mean, how much did you touch one another? Well, a lot, because I was five and made a lot of mistakes. Right. So she would either guide my hands or take the knitting from me and redo it and work it and then hand it back, tell me what a great knitter I was. I really believed her. (laughs) Well, and how much, right, and how much did you smell her? Right. Well, and that was the whole thing. Everybody drank coffee in Grandma's kitchen. It always was full of cats. It smelled like yarn. It was warm. And it just had this homey, vibrant sense of belonging to these people. I didn't really decide I wanted to knit. My grandma decided we should all learn to knit because it was important to her and it was something she could share with us. And because she thought it was important, I thought it was important. Because she had investment in you Mm -hmm. as hers that she identified with you, you identified with her, you had that sense of functional identification, so there was a conforming of your behavior, and that allowed a connection, and that allowed respect to be communicated. Exactly. Where now, people go to learn how to knit, they go to YouTube, which is great. I mean, I've looked up YouTube stuff. I, I do it weekly, but the the difference is you're not sitting there with Grandma in her kitchen, drinking her coffee, chatting about her best friend Irma and what you were learning in school and all the things that you cared about and were worried about while you learned to knit. You're just checking out YouTube, finding out how to make a stitch. It's a whole different experience in many ways. Well, it's about just exchanging and gaining information. Exactly. It's not about actually making contact and connection. Matter of fact, these days... People will use the term reach out when they just mean contacting someone else. And they're not really meaning that sense of really establishing a relationship the way reaching out meant in the past. People kind of give themselves more credit by using a term that means more than is really warranted the way that they're using it. Right. And just that lack of reaching out, that lack of personal connection is leading to what is being known as the plague of loneliness. This is being commented on at Harvard Business Review. It's being treated as a physical ailment in some hospitals. It's a real deal. Well, it's it comes, in my mind, from, from people really trying to treat relationships the way some people do when they're hungry, when they go to a fair or go to an event <laughs> and... When they're hungry, instead of getting themselves a really nutritious meal, they buy a hot dog or they buy worse uh, cotton candy, for instance. The person thinks they're going to get all this cotton candy that the child looks at it and thinks, wow, this is really going to be great. And for a couple of seconds, it is. And then it melts in their mouths, and pretty much all you have in a couple of minutes is a bitter, sticky taste. Mm-hmm. Okay? So rather than people cultivating stable, long-term, nutritious relationships people are spending a lot of their time engaged in superficial, short-term information and interest-oriented interchanges. Mm -hmm. In order to achieve a stable connection, though, 
people have to have respect and they have to have ways of expecting and defining respect that's demonstrated in relationships in order for those long-term connections to be achieved and maintained. Mm -hmm. In my understanding, respect is an explicit though routine recognition of someone's unique role, their value of that role, and the commitment of the respecting person to cooperate routinely with it. So, but hold on a minute just for a second, because role is different than personhood. So a person might be in a role, and they might not act in a way that we feel like we can show them respect or honor. But if it's a God-given role, and God commands us to honor that role, then well, we our are, relationship as Christians is to honor the role. When we show love, love entails a bit of respect. When we recognize the image of God in someone else, just that little bit of considering somebody else and their image of God is a modicum of respect. Even an infant can be respected when they're in the role of infant, mm -hmm. and we're treating them as an infant, and we act like they're an infant. A toddler is respected. You can see really good teachers are gifted in teaching because they treat children like the children they are at that age and the roles and the learning and the behaviors that should be expected of those children. That teacher is actually respecting the child for where they're at at that time in that role and they're valuing that childhood. Right. We really liked Band of Brothers too and there's a great scene in there where there's a, a commanding officer who treats the people under him pretty badly and yet um, they respect his role. He's over them and then a couple years later he meets them out on the field of battle in Europe and these these men that he had trained are just beaten. They've lost a lot of their company. A lot of them have been wounded. And one of the field commanders is now the, the reigning officer and has higher rank than this, this trainer. And the trainer walks by him and doesn't salute him. And Dick Winters, who is now the commanding officer, says to him, you salute the role, not the man. Right. It's He salutes the uniform, not the person. And the rank insignia defines the role. And it's the role that is to be respected in that interchange. That respect for that role is necessary to the very survival of that entire unit. And that entire unit understands that thoroughly and implicitly. That's the very reason why that even though new recruits who've been thoroughly tra trained and vetted and qualified for this duty nevertheless don't get the same degree of respect as the veterans. Mm -hmm. It's because the veterans still don't know if they're actually going to be able to carry out the role that they need them to carry out. And only when they've actually carried out and manifested that role do they get the full measure of respect from the other members of that unit. Mm -hmm. Right. I also love your example of how coupons are honored. And a coupon is just a worthless piece of paper. Well, that kind of brings up the distinction between respect and honor. Whereas respect is a routine recognition of a unique role, honor is something where we're intentionally assigning some exceptional value to something. So when we honor a person, there we're, we are showing value in an exceptional way. In the same way, coupons are an exceptional use of exchange. The routine use is called currency. Mm -hmm. But occasionally a merchant will actually honor a coupon by showing exceptional value to this worthless scrap of paper that now is not worthless, that has value to that merchant. And so coupons are honored because there's an exceptional attribution of value there. So respect is not the same as honor, but they're closely related because honor is exceptional 
whereas, whereas respect has to be routine in order for these connection relationships to exist. So if we want to have real relationships and truly connect with people, there has to be conformity to traditional cultural norms of respect that are routinely practiced or we're not going to accomplish the communicating of respect and therefore achieving long-term stable connections. So I want to just bring up something that I think is really interesting. Some of the research right now is that your children, your teenagers, have more in common with teens around the world. So my teenager in North America might have more in common with a teenager in Asia than they do with their parents in their own home. And when you're talking about traditional roles and, and values and relationships, how does that relate to a digital age where kids have, you know, by the second communication with people around the world, and those traditional roles are really merging into this global relational culture well culture, the global right, society right, right. the cultural society. Te- yeah. teenagers basically socialize one another into expected social norms and so when teenagers are connected globally they're they're actually kind of taken out of any particular culture and plugged into this global digital society <laughs> literally plugged in literally plugged in that's right in a way that kind of alienates them from any particular culture anywhere. And by doing so, that also tears out that whole function of connecting to adults, of connecting to traditions, of connecting to any sort of larger national culture, tribal culture, religious culture, or family culture that are prerequisite to truly long-term stable connections that create the fertile ground for people to be loved and loved in very deep and persistent and robust ways that people are really needing to not suffer this plague of loneliness. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, that respect is also a prerequisite to that love. One can have respect and communicate respect without love, but one cannot have authentic love and communicate that love without having and communicating respect. Now, understand that that respect can come in the form of just being considerate, having manners, being polite, But remember that a minimal degree of respect is necessary for unconditional love that is derived from being human, though a larger degrees of respect must be conditioned on people fulfilling specific roles. So you can have a minimal degree of respect, consideration for just anyone, but for larger degrees of respect, that requires specific roles. But in either case, both of those are necessary to truly allow us to love one another. Mm-hmm. And the biblical mandate really is that we respect each other because we're made in the image of God. Uh, we might not like each other, but God does call us to respect and love each other. In, indeed, give res- honor to whom honor is due, praise is who to whom praise is due. The New Testament, the Old Testament, the entire Bible is filled with this love, respect, honor language. Mm-hmm. It's It's important to showing the value each one of us have, but the ways in which we do that have to follow conformity to expectations that are part of our community, our culture, that we identify with. And that's what allows us to love one another. 
And this could be really tricky now that we live in this digital age and our kids are globally connected and literally plugged in. How do we maintain our culture as Christians given that wider global culture? Well, most electronic communication is about efficiency and convenience. But that's what we're going to talk about in our next broadcast is how we can use these various kinds of these platforms of communication to show honor, respect, and connection. We want to be able to help people to use these tools without losing authentic connection, respect, and honor. Thanks for listening in today, everybody. We hope you join us next time for another broadcast of Soft Skills 101, Life Skills for a Digital Age. This has been David and Lisa Nearing with True North Homeschool Academy. We hope you check out our K-12 through grade live online classes, clubs, and testing at truenorthhomeschoolacademy.com. We'll talk to you next time on Soft Skills 101, Life Skills for a Digital Age, which you can listen to, download, and share on iTunes.